to Make It Soon, the podcast where science fiction meets reality. Each week, we'll bring you a sensational sci-fi invention and showcase the number one nerds making it come true. Coming up in this week's show. The first real-world example of a solar cell was crowdfunded. What he proposed was distorting space-time, moving faster than the speed of light. They were partly saying, can we invent a warp drive? If anyone else does, can we shoot it down? And now, your host, Marcus Martin. What up, folks? You're listening to Welcome. Oh, fuck, I fucked it. I said you're listening to Welcome. That's <laughs> Leave it in. Leave it in. The worst thing is, Jack, I've got the introduction written down. It's the only bit I've written down. And I've Leave it in. This is the eighth episode. You thought I'd have it down by now. No, no. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to Make It Soon, the podcast where science fiction meets reality. Hey, in this series, we're looking at some of the most iconic inventions from the world of sci-fi and meeting the incredible minds making them happen. I'm Marcus Martin, author of the number one best-selling series, Convulsive. Now buckle up for an awesome show because this week we're cranking up the warp drive. With me on the bridge are my cosmic co-pilots. If Starfleet was real, she would be their finest. Hailing from the University of Oxford, we have physicist Patricia Jacob. Patricia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Today, you've been doing component work for the European Southern Observatory through Harmony, a spectrograph for the Extremely Large Telescope. I'm not being glib, listeners. That's what it's called. Um, Patricia, you've also worked on spin coaters to 3D print mirrors you need for space telescopes. Um, you've been calculating the distances to far-flung star systems. I'd love to hear about your most recent project, which totally sounds like an 80s pop group. Can you tell us a little bit about X-ray binaries? So X-ray binaries are systems that comprises of a very compact object, like a neutron star or black hole. And then you have another star orbiting it. The mass from this orbiting object is accreted by this compact object and it forms a disk around it. It's very, very bright in X-ray. That's why you get the name X-ray binaries. Ooh. They also sometimes get jets coming up and down and those are very bright in radio. So I was using a telescope in South Africa called Meerkat, another good name for a telescope. Oh, so great. I observed the radio and a specific line called the hydrogen H1 line to try and determine the distance to X-ray binaries within our galaxy. Wow, so you're literally figuring out how far away these star systems are from us? Yeah, maybe we'll find out how to get to them today. Oh, that is the mission. I love the attitude. Well, Patricia, it's great to have you on board. And if Star Trek Voyager taught us one thing about space travel, it's that you always need a morale officer. Equipped with a pangalactic gargle blaster that's half full and sunny side up, it's my former stand-up comedy pal, Edinburgh Fringe comrade and deadpan sensation, Jack Lewis. Jack, welcome. Hi, Marcus. I'd like to start off by saying that I'm not thankful to be here. <laughs> <laughs> by here, do you mean alive or just on this show specifically? Well, yes, but you knew that about me. I mean specifically on this show. So I'd like to put in a quick disclaimer <laughs> at the start. So the fundamental concept to this podcast, as far as I can make out, is you get someone who really, 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 really knows what they're talking about. In this instance, <laughs> Patricia. And then you get someone who has the nickname, in my case, One Source Lures, because the majority of my opinions were sourced from a single podcast or article that I read in the last 48 hours, which I've taken at face value. This show shouldn't exist, and this format absolutely definitely shouldn't exist. You're encouraging the democratisation of expertise, which is clearly paradoxical. And by the way... It's incredibly tone deaf to have an ignorant and opinionated white man just sounding off in the current climate. 
<laughs> well, as I said, it's wonderful to have you here. Your career is no laughing matter, though, is it? Tell us about One for the World. So I'm the executive director at One for the World, which is an organisation that asks people to pledge 1% of their salary to the most cost-effective charities in global health and development. So not a lot of people know this, but if you want to donate to charity, you should take the same approach that you do when you buy car insurance. Namely, you should work <laughs> out whether some charities are better than others, clue, they are, and then you should give your money to the one that will do the best job for that money. And so by extending the compare the meerkat approach to charitable giving to the entire corpus of charitable bodies. We've worked with amazing uh, charity evaluator called GiveWell, who are based in San Francisco and do thousands of hours a year of research on different charitable causes, and identified charities where if you give them a genuinely tiny amount of money, they can actually prevent someone from getting a disease or improve the nutrition of a family or give money directly to people in poverty, and the outcomes are absolutely amazing. And so we think if you're going to donate to charity, you should donate a regular amount, and you should give it to literally the best charities in the entire world. So that's what we do at One for the World. What I've taken away from that is if I give a small amount of money to One for the World on a regular basis, I'll get two-for-one cinema tickets on a Wednesday. Is that right? No, but you will get a cuddly toy, and it's me telling you to be better <laughs> and do better with your life every time you press a button. Okay, well, that's immediate false advertising because the one word i would not use for you is cuddly no well, quite. <laughs> it's worth saying anyone listening to this podcast is clearly time rich and so presumably also monetarily rich and so i would encourage you to go to oneforTheworld.org, that one with a number and do something useful with both your time and your money brilliant i would encourage you to do it after this excellent show you've met the crew we're all ready to go patricia and jack are you guys ready yeah sure <laughs> And equally enthusiastic. All right, let's get in among it. So this week we're talking about faster than light travel, aka warp travel. And sci-fi is just brimming with examples. We've got Star Trek warp engines, you've got the Millennium Falcon's hyperdrive, in Hitchhiker's Guide, they've got the Infinite Improbability Drive. Doctor Who's got the TARDIS. There are wormholes in Deep Space Nine, in Stargate, in Thor. And then there are jump drives in Battlestar Galactica. I mean, it is everywhere. Let's kick off. I've got a question for Patricia. If you could travel faster than the speed of light, where would you go and why? I think that my thing would be depend on how I'm traveling faster than light and what's happening. For this answer, I'm just going to assume I teleport and I teleport back at the same time I left. I would like to go just inside a black hole and then back because I think that would give me bragging rights for life. Okay, great. So Patricia would go to a black hole. Jack, if you could travel faster than the speed of light, where would you go and why? These answers are already demonstrating the problem with this podcast, which is Patricia gave a very thoughtful and quite technical answer. <laughs> whereas my answer is New Zealand, because they don't have coronavirus. <laughs> Brilliant. Over the next hour, we're going to dive into the mind-bending physics of warp travel. What started out as sci-fi dreaming has grown into real-life theory. But before we send out an urgent intercom message to Scotty demanding that he gives her all she's got, we'll give you all we've got, starting with a quick tour of our favourite real-world space propulsion technologies. Jack, kick us off. What is Project Orion? Project Orion is possibly the greatest ever idea for interstellar travel. 
Uh, a San Diego-based defense contractor called General Atomics came up with Project Orion. And I think the best way that I can describe it to you, Marcus, is like this. Do you drive? Well, I can, but I don't have a car. Ah, uh, okay. Patricia, do you have a car? No. Okay, we'll use Okay, my... hang, on, hang on, Jack, Jack, do you have a car? I'm really pleased you asked, Marcus. I do, actually. Okay, well, let's use you as the basis for this. For the purpose of this conceit, it's kind of useful that I do, actually. Yeah. Um, so... Imagine my VW Polo. What colour is it? Silver. Okay, what year? <laughs> I don't care. Good condition? <laughs> Imagine that my somewhat ropey 2013 <laughs> VW Polo. No, wait for it, because you're going to like this. Okay. Imagine that we wanted it to be able to travel 70,000 light years really quickly to get to the nearest star to Earth. Yeah. How would you feel if I said, sit in it, and we're going to strap a number of nuclear bombs to the back of it? <laughs> and you would say, that's an interesting approach. What do you intend to do with that, Jack? I would say, are they going to damage my subwoofers? I paid extra for them. I don't have a pimped-up car. Neither do you, actually, as you revealed earlier. So let's no, but track. If, if I so, did have a car, it would be pimped up. So, I reserve that right. Fine. And as, as with most artists, many of your fictional possessions are very nice. Um, <laughs> so the basic premise is, imagine if we put this VW Polo in space and then every time we wanted it to go a bit faster, we just blew up a nuclear bomb on the back of it. That is Project Orion. What? What? Can I tell you what my favourite sentence in the uh, articles that I was reading about this was? Sure. And I quote, Experimentation on this came to a halt with the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty of 1963. <laughs> because at that wow. point strapping a variety of objects to nuclear bombs and setting them off was considered <laughs> ill-advised <laughs> wow okay so i mean i was just about to ask you why it didn't happen but i think now we know because it was banned by an international treaty well no marcus i think to be fair the actual answer to that is because it's a fucking stupid idea <laughs> so that might answer also my next question jack would you have volunteered for that mission i imagine it would beat the m25 but broadly <laughs> speaking no because i think what they've done like a sort of badly programmed artificial intelligence algorithm they have solved one problem but without necessarily understanding the whole problem because no one has commented on the state of play once you actually get there having set off presumably several nuclear bombs behind you <laughs> So what we can say with a degree of certainty is we would eventually get the VW Polo there, but we can't really speak to the condition it would be in by the time <laughs> it arrived. Yeah, if you were listing it on a used car website, you would say, at best used yeah it's a bit like a flower delivery service that i used recently who advertise flowers that will go through your letterbox but it turned out what they meant in my case was flowers that we will bend in half and ram through your letterbox <laughs> they did technically deliver what they said but in some ways, they'd missed the wider context of what I was looking for. I, I had a very similar experience, actually, with some uh, delivered flowers, which were sent for... Like, I can't remember why we received flowers. Someone someone sent us flowers. And they came through. And it was, it was again, also sort of like in a cardboard box comes through the door. And you're like, thank you very much for this potpourri. Yes. I, I'll be honest, I, I, I won't be putting it in a vase so much as a small bowl in my bathroom. But thank you, nonetheless. Yeah, you're right. When I look at these dead and wilted flowers, I do remember Nan fondly. Exactly. And people, you know, when you receive flowers, they always want to see a photo of it. But in this instance, they just got a photo of me taking a dump, looking like I was actually having quite a fragrant time. <laughs> 
So let's say we don't want to strap ourselves to atomic bombs, but we still want to get a bit of summer sun on Jupiter. What other ways have scientists found to accelerate spacecraft? Patricia, could you tell us about slingshot effects? I think the first thing, just as we're talking about space travel in general, is just to have an idea of how large and immense space actually is. Can, can you, I mean, if you hold your hands out, could you give us an indication? I can give you an idea. So imagine you're here in London in a basketball court and you get your basketball and you put it on one side of the court and then at the other end you put a pea. So in this case, the basketball would be a pretending it's the size of the sun. The P would be about the size of the earth. And then the distance of the court is about the separation, just the sun to the earth. But then imagine that you want to go to the closest exoplanet, which is Proxima Centauri B. The distance from Orpi in London to there would be going to Orlando, Florida in the US. That is an excellent scale. Patricia, so now I feel slightly terrified by how big space is, but I'm more keen than ever to get across it. Just one more thing before we go into slingshot. Mm. If we think about this fastest spacecraft ever launched, which was in 2018, it's the Parker Solar Probe, which is going to beat its own record in speed and is going to reach about 430,000 miles per hour in 2024. That's quite fast. If you were to travel at that speed from here to Prosmos and B, it would take us about 6,618 years. Oh. See, I have a question when I hear statistics like this, which is presumably the people who developed this had some sort of target in mind. And that number suggests that they missed it by quite a bit. Because I presume (laughs) they were aiming for, we could get there in about a week. (laughs) But the Parker Solar Probe is not going to this planet. It was just like, this is the fastest thing we have launched and that's how long it would take us to get there. In 6,800 years, presumably we would have invented several much better modes of transport. (laughs) You don't want to be the people, the person who's stuck on that, do you? You get overtaken, if not even reached the Oort cloud and all these new generations are just scorching past. It's basically (laughs) like putting someone in a unicycle in the middle of an F1 race. You know, they're going to get lapped quite a bit. But they will be the people's favourite by the end of the season. That that is true. Um, The other thing, of course, is I do feel like, I I love that you've tried to defend them because that wasn't what they were aiming for, but I do think that um, maybe we should introduce SMART targets in science a bit more. Now, SMART stands for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Realistic and Time-bound, and it's a very useful framework that your listeners, Marcus, might like when setting goals in their own lives. Science usually have a rule of thumb that you want an experiment to end before you die. Uh, Or, to be fair, in the best experiments, you want it to end and you to die at precisely the same time. (laughs) We're not going to send any time soon something that will take 6,000 years to get somewhere else. This has already dissolved into into me playing the role of the ignorant populist and you trying to defend scientific endeavour, which is exactly (laughs) what I was afraid of at the start of this podcast. Okay, Patricia, right, we've, we've got the context. Uh, and an inordinate amount of chat from me and Jack. Can you you tell us about the the slingshot effect? Yeah, so with slingshot effect, with your spacecraft, you're kind of going around a celestial body like a planet. You're kind of stealing some of its energy to your spacecraft, so it goes quicker. That's why it's slingshot, so you're getting a little bit, and then you're slingshotting in a different direction. You're gaining some velocity by stealing some of the planet's energy. But because the planet is so massive and so large, even if you're stealing just a little bit, it would be stealing like one drop of water from the ocean. It doesn't really make any difference for the planet, but for you, it's going to make a large difference. What are the advantages of 
of this approach. You're not using fuel to gain speed, which is something that you definitely want because, you know, fuel increases the mass of your spacecraft and you want to make it light to travel and not waste some of your weight with fuel. But there must be some complications as well with that approach. Yes, because you're depending on uh, planets, on bodies in space to do this. You are going to depend on where they are and you have to plan the timing carefully so you get there at the right time to get that effect. You know, if you want to go in a straight line, that wouldn't really work for you. If you're at the fairground and you've got one of those little pea shooters and you went on the spinning teacups ride, I guess that's kind of what it's like, right? As in you're on a planet that's constantly moving. You're trying to hit something else that's also on its own orbit. It must be extremely complicated charting all of those different trajectories. Yeah, I like the analogy. Well, thank you. You can use it in your own science. She's just being polite. That was rubbish. <laughs> did you prepare for this show at all? <laughs> I did. I, I went on the teacups once as a child. <laughs> Patricia, can you give us some successful examples of the slingshot effect, which I think is also called gravity assist? Yes, because you're going around the planet using the gravity to assist you. Yeah, all right, no need to be like that. Just, <laughs> just using its name. They're very literal with their naming, these things. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we, we heard what they called the extremely large telescope. Yeah. I mean, you haven't heard of the overwhelmingly large telescope. <laughs> One of the successful ones was Messenger, which was launched in 2004, and it got a boost from Earth and also used Venus to redirect and resize its trajectory to go to Mercury's orbit. Another one is New Horizons, launched in 2006 and went all the way to Pluto. It got an extra 9,000 miles per hour by using a gravitative assist from Jupiter. You've messed off an example there, uh, Patricia, which is, of course, in the film The Martian. <laughs> The only way that they can rescue Matt Damon is actually by <laughs> slingshotting around the Earth and going back to Mars. Honestly, Jack, for a minute I was thinking you hadn't done any homework, but I can see now you've pulled out all the stops. Was there um, any other prep I was supposed to do apart from watching the film The Martian? All of Matt Damon's back catalogue. I think I'm actually there. <laughs> I, look, I used to be trying to move to New York and so I've spent a lot of time on flights and believe me I've watched a lot of Matt Damon films in the last year <laughs> did you ever see Elysium uh, yeah yeah it's alright yeah yeah, yeah it's alright wasn't it it was, all right, it was it? the 33rd best Matt Damon film I'd ever seen <laughs> So the Voyager probes, they got assists from all the big boys in the galaxy. They went around Jupiter and then Saturn and then I think Uranus. And do they keep accelerating or do you kind of reach a terminal velocity once you have your last gravity assist? So when you get a gravity assist, you're getting some speed from that planet and then you keep going that speed unless something is there to stop you. So gravity assists offer a great way to hitch a free ride. But what if you need to input a course correction? Patricia, have we got any technologies currently that could do that? Yeah, we have uh, ion propulsion. Ion propulsion? Yes, I think this one is actually really cool because you get plasma and plasma is always cool. <laughs> I donate plasma about every 12 weeks, actually. Yeah, all right, Jack, we got it from your intro that you're a good guy. No need to... God, it's just obnoxious at this point. Sorry, Patricia, you were saying about science. Yeah. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, ion is just an atom or molecule which has an electron charge as a result of gaining or losing an electron. For the case of ion propulsion, you usually have a, a positively charged, so it has lost an electron. And for those of you who don't know what a plasma is, it's an electrically neutron gas. So if you have a mixture of these like ions, some electrons and some neutron atoms, and it adds up to zero, you can have plasma. And it's the fourth state of matter. 
So what happens in an ion proportion is that you have a chamber and then in this chamber you're going to release some neutron atoms, usually xenon, and then you're going to bombard these neutron atoms with electrons. Then these ions are attracted to the grid, which has an electron potential. And as they escape, they're accelerated. And because they're accelerated, the difference between this is going to provide a thrust, a proportion. But of course, because you're releasing all these ions, you're going to get a net negative charge inside because you have all these electrons left over. So you also have a neutralizer, which I think sounds like a really cool weapon for sci-fi. <laughs> it sounds like a Denzel Washington film when... <laughs> so like <I've> that. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a lot of trust that you're getting from this sort of stuff, but because it, it works for a really long time, the NASA has done one that they kept it working for five and a half years continuously. Whoa! You can just keep accelerating and building up speed for a very long period of time. Have you considered strapping a nuclear bomb to the back of your car? <laughs> <laughs> Might be the next step. Mm. My understanding of propulsion in space is, unless you're using your gravity assist, you've got to spit out some mass behind you in the opposite direction to which you want to travel. And this was really well demonstrated in a short on Netflix from the Love, Death and Robots series, where a woman is in space harvesting satellite debris or something, and she gets stuck on a spacewalk floating with no propulsion, and she needs to find a way of getting to her vessel. Slight spoiler, this is super gnarly, right? She depressurizes a small part of her suit around her arm, so her arm freezes in the vacuum of space. Once it's frozen, she wrenches off her own arm <laughs> and, then, oh and then throws it away. And by ejecting mass behind her, is able to move forwards towards her ship. So she does get home. So she saves her own life, albeit she'll need an arm. It's basically the space version of that film 127 Hours, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, exactly that. Uh, James Franco just floating around in space. Like, well, there's only one way to get home. Yeah, except instead of a rusty pen knife, she used the vacuum of space. It sounds <laughs> a bit cooler, but the effect is much the same. It's a lot cooler. So it sounds like an ion drive is essentially using that same logic of you've got to have something to tuck out behind you and you've got to have a way of creating that something, which is to create a plasma field and then neutralize the negative charge. Very nifty. Have there been successful examples using ion propulsion? Yeah, so the first success was in 1964, NASA's Space Electric Rocket Test 1, or CERT 1, that tested this technology in space. And then you have the Deep Space 1 in 1998, which was the first spacecraft to really use ion propulsion as its primary propulsion source. Wait, Deep Space 1 is real? Yeah. That's so cool. Sorry. As a big fan of Deep Space Nine, it brings me a lot of joy to know that Deep Space One is a real thing. In Deep Space One, the ions were actually shot at 146,000 kilometers per hour or 88,000 miles per hour. That sounds fast. It's worth pointing out that these examples really demonstrate that uh, necessity is the mother of invention because you'll note that the first successful example was in 1964, one year after the nuclear test ban treaty had really taken the nuclear <laughs> bomb option off the table. <laughs> You know, listener, making a cult sci-fi podcast is a lot like being Matt Damon in The Martian. Uh, not the bit about eating poop potatoes. I mean, being a lone voice in the infinite void of space, relying heavily on some equipment from the mid-2000s. Help bring the next season of your favourite podcast home. Head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. Oh, in case it's not clear, listener, in this metaphor, I'm the stranded astronaut and you're NASA. Don't worry, we both get cool outfits. It's super quick and easy to show your support. Go to makeitsoon.com slash donate.
Thank you so much. Oh, and remember to wash those potatoes. So NASA have obviously been the world leaders in space travel to date, but as governments struggle to justify vast investment budgets on these risky space missions with potentially abstract rewards, a private sector space industry is springing up in the gap. SpaceX get a lot of press, so let's give them some more. Jack, can you give us a quick summary on their Starship project? You should go to the SpaceX website, the absolute triumph of style over substance. Ah! It is beautiful. <laughs> But actually finding out any real information is almost impossible. And I'd like to give you a few examples. First of all, you can't help but notice after a few minutes on there that almost every illustration on there has overt phallic imagery in it. Nearly every picture and model and illustration is of something that is the exact shape of a penis. I feel like if the space race had been led by women, rockets would be slightly different shapes. In the future, when we finally elected women to run every country in the world because we've realised how much better the outcomes are, the last bastion of the patriarchy is going to be people shooting through space on penis-shaped rockets. <laughs> hey, let's let's be fair, though. Austin Powers 2, I'm fairly sure... <laughs> The prophet um, <laughs> Mike Myers did predict this problem. So that was the first thing I noticed. The second thing I noticed was they have a little model that runs through a simulation of a landing and they say, oh, click play to see how we would land a SpaceX. What I can't help but notice is that the simulation stops just before impact. Which is not super reassuring. It would be like someone saying, me saying to the pilot, can you land this plane? And him saying, yes, here's a video of the last time I landed a plane. And it cuts out just before it touches around and he goes, so I hope you find that reassuring. Please take your seat. In fairness to SpaceX, when they released a video of, I think it was the Falcon Heavy 9's landing in sync, we'll post the video on the Make It Soon Facebook page of these two craft coming back down from low orbit, touching down at the exact same time on these parallel touchpads. It, it is incredible what they've achieved. They have hit upon quite an important problem in space travel, which is basically that all spaceships are the equivalent of single-use disposable plastic. Mm -hmm. In the you use them once, and then... And you just kill loads of turtles. Yeah, and you kill loads. loads and then they wash up on the shores of Hawaii, and, <laughs> and people are very sad about it. I went to Brighton Beach the other day, and uh, Saturn V washed up, and I was like, I just wept. I was like, not again. Not, not again. again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did they not learn with Saturns 1 through 4? It says, take your litter home. <laughs> and they haven't. They haven't. Who's going to clean that up? Yeah, okay? yeah. yeah. Immigrants, probably. <laughs> It's just the way that capitalism is structured. So it is worth pointing out, SpaceX are onto something, because I think most of us, if we were boarding a plane and they said, by the way, the deal here is when you get to Sydney, we're going to throw you out of the front and then we're just going to crash this into the sea. I think all of us would think that there was a sort of fundamental problem with both the business model and the concept. And so what they've done is, is as they've proven you know, reasonably successfully, they've invented a spacecraft that can go to space and come back and land and that is obviously going to be very useful and they predict using this to help us colonize mars and be able to shuttle between lots of different planets and and so on and so forth they basically invented the national express coach system but for the <laughs> um the, 
and it's worth saying a second part of this is they, that they can carry this amazing amount of cargo on one of these rockets. So I don't know if this rocket is in concept or exists yet, but it's supposed to be able to carry 100 metric tons of kit, which is way more than anything else can. So, yep. you know, they're onto something. They have figured out something we're going to have to solve, and they're putting their best effort into it, one penis-shaped rocket at a time. Very nice. So the Starship, as I understand it in particular, is going to be commissioned for heavy-duty space cargo, but then also missions to Mars, and as they put it, and beyond. So it remains to be seen when they're going to do that, but I'm fairly sure they're trying to race NASA, who are aiming for 2030 with their Orion project. Patricia, can you give us a quick summary of an alternative propulsion method, which isn't just Elon Musk strapping the world's biggest rocket to the back of a spaceship. Solar sails, what's the deal there? Well, if solar sails, they work in a very similar way that you would expect both sails work. So you have these gas particles hitting the sail and it transfers some momentum. And because of Newton's third law, that propels it forward. In the same way, we're trying to do that with photons, which are the particles for light. So if you have lots of photons hitting a sail, which in this case would have to be something that reflects them, you could be propelled and travel through space by this mechanism. So my understanding of photons, which I'll hold my hands up, is very bad, was that they have no mass. Firstly, is that right? Yes. Okay, so how does something with no mass have impact when it hits a sail? Photons have no mass, but they do carry momentum, uh, and momentum is what's going to make it change. Mm, I think a capillary in my head just burst. <laughs> so in this case, the sail would be something quite different to a normal sail would be something that reflects so imagine it's kind of a mirror and you know that light reflects off a mirror because you can see yourself in a mirror the light is bouncing and coming back to your eyes if it's doing that bounce you're it's transferring some of its momentum are we going to call that kinetic energy uh, no it's not the same as kinetic energy brilliant no that was a that was a trick question and you passed well done patricia <laughs> excellent, excellent patricia's answer. too polite to say this but just stay in your lane mate <laughs> <laughs> So solar sails take the momentum from a photon and use that to propel the craft forward. Can you give us any examples where that's been done in, in the real world? Yeah, so there's a really cool example, which is the Light Sail 2. It was crowdfunded by around 50,000 people around the world and they raised about $7 million to create it. And it was launched in 2019, so quite recent. It was a proof of concept to show that you could use it. That's so cool. So the first real world example of a solar sail was crowdfunded. It was actually the second ever spacecraft after Japan's Icarus mission to successfully use solar sailing. So it's not the first one to use it, but it is the first one to be propelled by solar sailing in Earth's orbit and the first small spacecraft to be propelled by solar sailing in general. I think the other one proved that it could be used and this one used it all the way. I feel like it's still impressive, but it definitely starts to sound like one of those Guinness World Records where you're like, you're the first person to eat a Satsuma while playing the banjo on the sunroof on the autobahn. I often think with Guinness World Records that they should be obliged to say how many people have tried. Because <laughs> I think if you looked across that, speaking as a world record holder myself, no. I think you would find that very very few people have attempted a lot of these records. What's your record? I was part of the longest ever match of rugby union where we played full contact rugby with the normal number of players for 27 hours. Oh! Oh my god. So it was just ongoing substitutions and lots and lots of oranges. Yeah, but obviously the normal number of players. So the average playing time was north of 20 hours per player. It, it was That's pretty horrible. horrific. This, this was from I my mean, old charity, which I'm going to give a plug to, the School of Hard Knocks, which uses rugby to help unemployed people. And apparently uses insomniacs to play rugby. Yeah, there wasn't much sleep to be had. 
So I think we've established so far that if we want to reach another star system, we're going to need to crank up the gas a little, ideally by traveling at or above the speed of light, which is, of course, warp travel. Assuming we achieve warp one, which is the speed of light, it would take us over four years to reach our nearest neighboring star system, Alpha Centauri, as Patricia has said. So let's leave the issues of keeping human passengers fit and healthy for that kind of voyage aside. And let's just focus on the even bigger hurdle of how the hell do we even build a warp engine? We need to talk physics. Patricia, I think at this point we need to touch on Einstein's 1905 special theory of relativity. It is very, very weird, I'll warn you now. The first thing that you need to know is the main postulates, and there are two of them. The first one is the principle of relativity, which says that the laws of physics are the same in all inertial frames of reference, that is, frames which are not accelerating. And the second one is the light speed postulate, which says that there's a finite maximum speed for signals. We call it the speed of light. If nothing can travel faster than light, regardless of your reference frame, then that means that speed is a constant. And we know that speed is just distance divided by time. So if uh, speed is a constant, that means that distance and time can change depending on the observer, which is something that we definitely don't see on a daily basis. Unless one of us is on acid. <laughs> the two implications of this, uh, you get two things. One is called the length contraction and the other one is the time dilation. I've been accused of both of those. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> okay. So if you have an astronaut going a uh, spacecraft and that's passing by Earth, and this astronaut is carrying a wooden pole and this spacecraft is going at relativistic speed, something significant to the speed of light. From Earth, we would see the pole shrink and the same way we would see the astronaut get shorter, but only the direction of travel. He would still be the same thickness, but he would just be very small. Uh, but this astronaut inside the spacecraft would see himself normal and the wooden pole would be still the same size. So that's how two uh, observers would see the same thing, but in a different way. And that's an example of length contraction. A big building up close looks big. You stand really far away, it looks small. How is this different? Imagine just a square. If you're looking far away or up close, the square is just going to be smaller, but keep as a square. With length contraction, if it's the square is traveling upwards, it would be squashed down. So the top and bottom would look smaller, but the side length of it, that's not the direction it's traveling, would still be the same. Jack, why don't you just tell us a classic light-hearted Jack Lewis anecdote about Einstein, or indeed, that theory. Yeah, I'm pleased you read out that part of the script, because I don't want to reveal how the sausage is made. Jack to tell light-hearted anecdote about theory of relativity. In my defence, it does say, with a little asterisk, we'll take hilarious if it's available over light-hearted. I can actually confirm that the special theory of relativity is correct, because the special theory of relativity says that the faster you're moving, the slower time gets but the slower you're moving, the quicker time gets. And like everybody else, I have recently experienced a dramatic slowing of time and movement by going into coronavirus lockdown. And I can confirm that I aged approximately four decades in four months during <laughs> coronavirus lockdown. And I would like to give you some examples. First of all, I started growing herbs. Who has the time to grow herbs? It turns out I do when there's absolutely nothing else to do. I took out National Trust membership. Thus, instantly aging me by 20 years. But I think most concerningly, my wife and I had a whole conversation based on the fact that a quiche that we had bought from Marks and Spencer's was supposed to be cooked at 170 degrees fan in the oven. And we had genuinely talked for about five minutes about the fact you just don't see that cooking temperature that much, do you? Do you? 
you know? 170 degrees, 180 degrees fan, you see that all the time. 160 degrees fan, but you just don't see 170 that often, do you? It's absolutely remarkable. So thankfully, I'm here to confirm that Einstein was right. That is a very nice story, but unfortunately, the slower you go does not mean that the time is increasing. Yeah, no one really asked you, Patricia, they did that. And your brief said to give a summary of the theory of relativity, whereas my brief said to give a light-hearted anecdote about that theory. No, no, Jack, what Patricia's tactfully saying is it's not a problem with Einstein theory, there are just some problems with your marriage. You're really ruining my, I thought, quite good bit of material on the special theory of relativity. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, we'll leave it in. We'll leave it in. It's lovely. Um, Patricia, Einstein had a hit comeback album in 1915. What was general relativity all about? So the big leap here that Einstein made was realising that the force we call gravity arises from distortions of the Miskowski's flat space-time, which are created by the presence of mass slash energy. I probably need to explain that a little bit more. Yeah. Only every single word. <laughs> Mikowski had a good idea of uh, describing space. He the one that directed The Matrix? <laughs> no, sorry, someone else. <laughs> Mikowski. So imagine you have a hula hoop and you're putting a bed sheet on top of it and you fix it somehow around the hula hoop. And then you have a, this flat sheet would be like Mikowski's uh, flat space time. Now, if I were to put like a tennis ball or something on top of it, it would deform space-time, so that in this case, the space-time could be like the sun. For anyone else listening who did what I did in my head, which was take the hula hoop and tie the bedsheet around it, sort of like a massive lasso, that's the wrong thing. You want to lay the bedsheet across the centre of the hoop flat. Just thought I'd help out with the old heavy lifting on the theory there. I think we can all agree that we're stupider for that intervention. <laughs> <laughs> make it easier just imagine you have sort of a trampoline and you're standing in the middle of the trampoline if you're standing in the middle of the trampoline it curves and it goes down to where your feet are and i imagine someone from outside the trampoline gets a table tennis ball or something and throws it in as it comes in it's going to curve around and loop until it gets to your feet it's going to fall in the same way that you have the sun and the earth and the planets and they're orbiting does that imply that we're slowly being sucked towards the center of the sun no, uh, depends on how fast you're going. If you get a tennis ball and you tie it in a piece of string and you start lacing it over your head. Back in the room. <laughs> if you spin it quick enough, it's going to stay up in an orbit. So the theory of general relativity established that space-time is one plane that moves according to the mass of what's in it, is that right? So it described that things that have mass or energy can deform that space. We'll post a video on the Make It Soon Facebook page, which demonstrates the principle that Patricia was talking about there, about how general relativity works in space-time. We've established that speed of light is constant, which means that space and time are the things that are malleable and that they are affected by the objects in them. From that basis, Jack, can you give us a short bio of the Mexican physicist Miguel Alcubierre. What's the crack with him? I can. So the main thing you need to know about him is he looks quite a lot like Clive Owen and he's really <laughs> smart. Interesting family history. Uh, his dad was a refugee from the Spanish Civil War and moved to Mexico, at which point his dad and his descendants sponged off the state for many generations and undermined the values of Mexico. Oh no, sorry, hold on a minute. That's not true. Actually what happened <laughs> is that he went to university, became wicked smart and possibly had a massive breakthrough in physics. There's a lesson in that. I'll see if you can spot what it is. <laughs> 
Patricia, can you now give us a quick summary of Alcubierre's seminal theory? Yeah, so what he proposed was a way of distorting space-time. Imagine that space is like the surface of a balloon. If you are to draw two dots in the balloon, as the balloon expands, these dots would be moving further and further away from each other. And it might seem for a different observer that as these two dots move away, they would be moving relatively to each other faster than the speed of light. But it's not that they are moving faster than the speed of light, it's that space is expanding, the space-time is expanding. So they're not violating any of the laws that we saw in special relativity, it's just that space-time is distorting. That's very cool. This example shows that the expansion of space-time allows us to move away from some object at an arbitrarily large speed. Uh, in the same way, we could use contraction, so like deflating the balloon to get closer to an object at any speed. So what Alcubierre proposed is that behind the spacecraft, it would be a deformant that would expand the space-time, and right in front, it would contract. So this would kind of push you to go like really quick, way faster than light, in a way. So what he's proposing is just this distortion of space-time. So this was a summary from Science Alert. In layman's terms, the Alcubierre drive achieves faster-than-light travel by stretching the fabric of space-time in a wave, causing the space ahead of it to contract while the space behind expands, exactly as Patricia said. But since the ship is not moving through space-time, but is rather moving space-time itself, conventional relativistic effects like time dilation would not apply. Can I say the complications? Just because we're saying this, it sounds like all great and amazing that you can travel faster than light. It sure does. It's important to point out that the assumptions that you use, it violates three energy conditions, weak, dominant, and strong. And likewise, like with wormholes, that means that we'd need an exotic method to travel faster than light. To create these distortions, we need a lot of energy. I think it's time Jack told us another loosely related witty anecdote. Well, thank goodness you asked, Marcus, because I was thinking <laughs> I must tell one of my Alcubierre Drive anecdotes before this section comes to an end. <laughs> now, what is less well known, I think, about Alcubierre is something that I discovered during our coronavirus lockdown. So as you know, Marcus, I was supposed to move to New York City in April, but then it dissolved into a Mad Max style plague filled hellscape. <laughs> Unfortunately, I had already let my flat and so had to move away from London and stay with my parents, which was in itself somewhat of a trial. And whilst down there, I discovered one of the lesser known results of the Alcubierre drive, which is that it actually inspired the computer game Faster Than Light. And having played this computer game for, according to my Steam subscription, somewhat more than 200 hours... I can actually confirm that it is possible to be in a bubble within the fabric of space-time itself because I know that I both managed to play 200 hours of it but have moved absolutely no further forward as a human being as a result. <laughs> it is worth saying I did have one profound change down there, which is I lived in the country for so long that I became intensely interested in local planning applications. <laughs> Patricia, let's talk about gravitational waves. What have they got to do with warp travel? Einstein projected them in 1916 in his general theory of relativity, and he predicted that if two very massive objects were closely orbiting one another, this would disrupt space-time in such a way that waves of undulating space-time would propagate in all directions from the source. Okay, so he predicted that there would be ripples from these two bodies moving together. Has that been proven? Yes, so the first type of proofs were indirect, mostly made 1974 using their receivable radio observatory in Puerto Rico and they were observing a binary pulsar and they were looking how their orbit changes through time and see if that matched what Eisen predicted and it did 
But the first direct proof was only done in September 14th of 2015 by LIGO. And they detected gravitational waves for the first time. And these ones were caused by colliding black holes, which were 1.3 billion light years away. And how does the existence of gravitational waves support Alcubierre's warp drive theory? So Alcubierre's warp drive theory is just asking you to distort space-time and gravitational waves so that distortions happen in nature. So we could potentially harness them for the benefit of travel. That's mm -hmm. awesome. A fun thing about gravitational waves, the measurement that you measure them from over here, from these black holes, the wobbling of space-time is about a thousand times smaller than the nucleus of an atom. So the precision that they had in instruments nowadays is just insane. Have you heard what the gravitational waves sound like? I definitely recommend. <gasps> oh, no. We'll find that and we'll put it on the show's Facebook page. Check it out. Be warned, it sounds like a guinea pig. <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay, great. If you have a guinea pig at home, you can do an A-B test. That's real science. <laughs> This show is made possible by the generosity of listeners like your good self. This show is entirely self-made. Help us bring the next season fresh to your ears at Maximum Warp. Just head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. It literally only takes a moment to donate and it makes such a big difference. If you believe that this show deserves a future, makeitsoon.com slash donate. Help me to bring you more amazing sci-fi content. Thanks so much. I truly appreciate it and I couldn't do it without you. Now, where were we? Presumably something deeply weird. Let's find out. Okay, so now we know that warp travel is theoretically possible. It's a real prospect. We just got to build the technology to make it happen. Jack, has anyone taken a swing at that? Well, I'm pleased you asked, Marcus, because the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA, had a crack at this in the US. It does loads of R&D around matters to do with defense, but a lot of that spills over into civilian technology. Broadly speaking, they just threw some lines in the water and said, anyone want to tell us how to do a warp drive? <laughs> Apparently, part of their remit, and the part this actually came from, is not only to invent things, but also to monitor threats that might be invented by other countries so you yeah. might have seen that russia claims to have created a hypersonic missile this is the sort of thing darpa would be working on combating so they were partly saying can we invent a warp drive but they were also partly saying if anyone else does can we shoot it the fuck down which is much more <laughs> So what did they conclude? Well, they got a paperback from two people whose credentials were sort of, <laughs> should we say, adequate at best, <laughs> who tried to connect the idea of warp travel with dark energy. Now, the definition of dark energy that I found is that it's pushing the universe apart at ever-increasing speeds. And so it is very much the Prince Andrew of matter in the universe. <laughs> Basically, the report that came back listed a number of known theories in physics, all of which are true. And the conclusion appeared to be, we reckon we could use some of this to build a warp engine. The problem with it, and it has been not particularly well received by the rest of the scientific community, <laughs> is that they basically listed a load of stuff that is true and then just handed it over to the Department of Defence and went, there you go, we'll take our fee now. Which is sort of the equivalent of someone who's working on a COVID vaccine giving you a syringe and the Encyclopedia Britannica and going, I'm pretty sure everything you need is here. <laughs> and I suppose a more precise analogy would be IKEA giving you an Allen key and putting you in a forest and saying, <laughs> now you have a desk. <laughs> Patricia, we've clearly established that 
there are some hurdles when it comes to building this technology, some challenges around negative energy. Would that be needed as a fuel? Not necessarily negative energy. It's what we call exotic matter, which can be something that has like a negative mass and other properties. It's very weird. We need something about the size of Jupiter to power this thing, although we don't really know how to get it. Here I've put Jack to share a witty anecdote about negative energy, but, but really we're talking about exotic matter. I hope you can just casually switch those two words and that your anecdote still holds up. No, I can't. And I'm not prepared to bail you out because you failed to MC this in the direction that we agreed in advance. So on the subject of negative energy, I'm pleased you brought that up, Marcus. Now, you and Patricia will both know people who have an almost uncanny ability to get people to have sex with them. And they just seem to have unbelievable game. Well, I have the negative energy version of game, which is that I can take a situation in which I'm almost guaranteed to be about to have sex and fuck it up and get kicked out of the house. And there have been numerous examples of this. I believe there is now statistical significance to show that I exude some sort of negative sexual energy. So when I was going through the long list of stories that I could tell on this particular theme, I think my favourite one was I was invited into the house of someone that I'd just been on a date with. We were a few dates in. It was still early days, but it was at the point where maybe things are going to happen. And we reach a point where neither of us is fully clothed. Because I am a respectful gentleman, I hadn't actually anticipated that we were likely to have sex. And so was wearing some boxes that my mum gave me that are blue with little penguins all over them. I did have my trousers on. I don't mean to embarrass her and I haven't named it. She didn't have her trousers on. I thought it's probably better to address this head on by saying, by the way, just so you know, I'm wearing really shit boxers. And she kicked me out for being presumptuous. <laughs> what I took from this is that if you're me, where I think you're always somewhat in the maybe category, the only time you can acknowledge that you might be about to have sex is when you've actually already had sex. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the material challenges that we'd face if we were to design this glorious warp engine. You're trying to take something with the equivalent mass of the planet Jupiter, contain that in a tank, and then ignite it within a spaceship. Could we even build a warp core strong enough to contain these reactions? The general answer is we are not sure. Even thinking about materials now might not make the most sense. I would focus on getting around our own solar system before going outside it. And then eventually we'll get to work travel. So I think I would just invest more in technologies, uh, keep exploring ion propulsion and solar sails and all the other ones. Let's try to get to Mars first. <laughs> yeah, before we sort of make a one-way trip to Alpha Centauri and then we're like, ooh, there's nothing here. Okay, so let's say in 43 years from now, in 2063, our own real-life Zephram Cochrane overcomes all of those hurdles and builds a working warp engine, despite everything we've just said about those difficulties. Let's say it happens. Will it be plain sailing for the crew on board? Jack, can you tell us a little bit about causal disconnection, ideally with some witty analogies? Sure. I mean, we've come this far, haven't we, really? So <laughs> as far as I can make out, the problem with causal disconnection is... We're broadly speaking talking about using methods of travel that enable us to exit the normal laws of Newtonian physics. We're either talking about creating 
bubbles at different angles within space-time that can move through space-time itself, or we're talking about trying to move faster than light, which I think is broadly considered a sort of impossibility, although see previous, you know, 50 minutes of podcast. And so someone has pointed out that once you get out of Newtonian physics, it might be quite difficult to get back in. And I think your listeners will be able to relate to this because we've all been in a situation where we've left a nightclub in order to be sick in some bushes, but then we've turned around and tried to come back into the nightclub and an unhelpful bouncer has told us to do one and that our money is no good here. And I think that is ultimately the problem with causal disconnection is we're kind of opting out of the general rules of the club that we're in within our universe and there might be some issues with coming back into it so as Richard Abusi who looks like Thor and founded the <laughs> Icarus Interstellar non-profit as he said in an article about this any spacecraft sitting within the bubble that's moving through space-time in the Alcubierre theory would not be able to communicate with the exterior of the bubble which suggests that a ship would not be able to turn off the bubble once inside of it and so essentially what we're doing is putting these people into some sort of purgatorial version of the M25 where they just sit on it forever <laughs> without ever getting anywhere. Let's just add on to that nightmarish vision with a spot of time dilation. Patricia, what is that? The time dilation is the other example, which is what you get from the special theory of relativity. So imagine you're standing on a platform with wheels underneath. You're picking up again the tennis ball and you're just throwing it down and it bounces off the floor and it comes back up. Now for you, the ball is always just going down and back up. Now if someone pushes you and is watching from in front of you, as you throw the ball down and up, for you it's just going down and up, but for them, the tennis ball is also traveling diagonally downwards and it comes back up because you are moving to the left. For the person that's looking at you, the ball is going to be traveling a larger distance than what you see in your frame of reference. But now imagine instead of this ball, you have a flashlight and you're pointing towards the floor, which has a mirror, and it's just going to bounce back down and up. Now, when you do this, for you, it's traveling a certain distance, comes down, and it comes back up, and that's fine. But for the other person, the same light has traveled a larger distance in the diagonal. So what you would think is, because I'm then looking outside, it has traveled a larger distance for me than for you, maybe light is changing the speed. But we know that from the theory, it cannot change the speed. So what I'm left to conclude is that for you, time is going slower than what it is for me because of the distance difference. That is super cool. That's a really great analogy. Thanks, Patricia. So how, how would time dilation affect warp travelers? That would depend on the method of time traveling. So if you're thinking of uh, Alcubierre's theory, you would find out that it's not much of a problem. It will only affect in the beginning and the end of the trip. But depending on your method and how you're achieving this faster than light travel, it could be a thing that could affect very much like getting really old or you being way younger than the other person or even like going back in time, some people might say. Jack, if you could use warp speed to travel back in time, what era would you choose to visit and why? Uh, about two hours ago so that I could get them back. <laughs> <laughs> Savage. I do want you to tell a specific anecdote, though. It's one you told me years ago. It's, come on, it's you the know, one. I, I can't take credit for this because it was written around two and a half thousand years before <laughs> I was born, and that makes that very tricky. Well, not with warp travel. You could go back and just steal. That's true, I could go back. Although, whether I would choose to visit the Battle of Thermopylae, which got a little messy, those of you who've seen the <laughs> historical documentary three 
300 will be familiar <laughs> with how this went. Ah, yes, there's Glaswegians roaming around ancient Greece. Glaswegians versus the orcs. Oh, sorry, no Persians. <laughs> we meant Iranians. With the elephants. No elephants in the ancient literature, I would, I would observe. No elephants. It, it was a solid film. I don't That's know what you're literally is. someone who's about... 200 years difference and came from a part of Africa rather than Persia but you know they can mash these things together in Hollywood that's fine alright Jack did you get a double first in classics from Cambridge or something so having studied classics one of my favourite uh, societies that I studied was the Spartans not for their human <laughs> rights or treatment of slaves or any of the other sort of relatively heinous things that they did but because they did have excellent one-liners and they most famously I think sent back an excellent response when they were faced by the overwhelming armies of Philip II of Macedon so he's going around conquering Greek city-states left and right and he finally comes to Sparta this famous society very warlike geared around having the best army in, in Greece etc etc and he sends over a messenger who says if you surrender we will welcome you into our empire we will give you your freedom we will leave you alone you'll get to carry on your life and your traditions you'll all be safe and the only thing we ask is a tribute of earth and water as a symbolic pledge of allegiance but if you fight us and you lose we will kill you we will kill your firstborn sons, we will enslave the women and children of Sparta, we will raise the city to the ground and no one will ever know that you existed. Ouch. Yes, and the Spartans sent back a single word answer which was, if. <laughs> so good. Absolute ballers. Legend. Spartans would have been absolutely devastating on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the ultimate use of a warp engine. We'd nip back, get whichever Spartan came up with that answer, bring them forwards, and just unleash them on the internet. <laughs> Patricia, let's talk about one final risk that could apply. If we were to master warp speed travel, let's say we overcome all the hurdles of fuel and building and, and design, but we do manage to manipulate these very real gravitational waves and these theories of relativity. What other risk could befall us upon arrival at our destination? Some other problems that you might get into when you're warping space is they might lose control of their spacecraft the moment they start because of the warping of the space-time itself. Something else that could be a problem is the radioactive shock waves on arrival because you have several light years worth of cosmic dust and gas between the orangey and the destination that you're getting to and that can turn into a dangerous shock wave of very high energy particles as soon as you arrive. Let's say 100 years from now, we've got a prototype warp ship. Virgin Galactic has been successful. Space tourism is a thing. Everyone's used to that. We've gone to the moon. Let's say we've already been to Mars. Would you guys go on the first warp ship? I have built up a number of frequent flyer miles with Virgin Atlantic from my <laughs> trips to New York. And I'm pleased to see that they're getting a government bailout despite paying absolutely no UK tax. So oh. I am extremely keen to jump on the first trip. And I think I'm right in saying that my 17,000 miles will get me a free trip in business. <laughs> oh, very nice. Patricia, would you go on a warp ship? The very first one, no. Uh, I fear that might be lots of risks involved, but I would like to be working on the science that gets us there.
guys, our mission is at an end. Patricia, Jack, thank you so much. It has been great having you on the show. My huge thanks to you both. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much for having me, Marcus. It was surprisingly pleasant. Oh, brilliant. We made Jack, the deadpan legend, actually say something sincere. Uh, presumably that's used your quota for the year, so I can only apologise to your wife and family who will not be hearing anything heartfelt until 2021. Jack, do you want to give a quick plug to your website where people could find out more about One for the World or donate? Please go to One for the World's newly redone website. It will blow your mind what you can achieve with tiny donations to the right charities. Every single person can afford to save lives, which I think is an amazing opportunity. And that website is oneforTheworld.org, and that's the number one for the world.org and you can find out more about the pledge and the charities we support and i really 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 would encourage you to take the pledge if you can the polemic nature of jack lewis he will give you two hours of deadpan comedy but it will be sandwiched between a very sincere commitment to bettering mankind to everyone listening at home thanks for joining us or if you've experienced time dilation during this episode thanks in advance for future time in which you do join us by which point we might be cryogenically frozen if we are and the weather's looking good feel free to wake me up if you've enjoyed this week's show do subscribe to the make it soon podcast and please leave a review on whatever platform you're using it makes a huge difference thanks for listening everyone and catch you next time despite what i said i actually enjoyed that